You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. So I'm Ali and this is Claire and we um, have very recently started a collective which is called Real Life and so the philosophy behind it was to uh, provide people with a platform to connect in real life and so away from the um, computers and whatnot and just the different energy you get from having real life connection and through the collective we program various talks and events and um, today's talk is in partnership with Melbourne Music Week and also M Pavilion and um, yeah we've curated this beautiful um, list of panellists, collection of panellists and um, yeah we're pleased to see you all here and we um, yeah hope you get a lot out of it and yeah if you want to know more about Real Life we have a website which is reallifeworking.com Events are um, open to everybody and, yeah, we have an Instagram at Real Life. So, yeah, we look forward to welcoming you at this event and to all other events of Real Life. Okay. Hi, everyone. Um, it's wonderful to see so many of you here today. My name's Rebecca Harkins-Cross. Um, I'm a writer and I'm really excited to be facilitating the discussion today on... Uh, on music and, and sound healing in various forms. Um, in his 2007 book, Musicophilia, the great British neurologist and writer Oliver Sacks wrote, for virtually all of us, music has great power, whether or not we seek it out or think of ourselves as particularly musical. This propensity to music shows itself in infant, infancy, is manifest and central in every culture and probably goes back to the very beginnings of our species. Such musicophilia is a given in human nature. It may be developed or shaped by the cultures we live in, by the circumstances of our lives, or by the particular gifts or weaknesses we have as individuals. But it lies so deep in human nature that one must think of it as innate. Um, any listener is familiar with music as perhaps a mode of relaxation, a form of expression, some kind of catharsis or a self. Um, but in the various philosophies and practices of our guests today, music and sound have shown to have very tangible, um, both spiritual and, and physical aspects of healing. Um, so today we have, uh, on the end of the panel, uh, Mona Rouse. Mona is a gong practitioner trained by the College of Sound Healing in Devon, UK. Uh, inviting participants to close their eyes and open their ears, she curates a unique experience into sound and the senses and an exploration of the listening body. Mona has spent the last 12 years abroad in Berlin and London where she facilitated sound baths, gong concerts and deep listening events. After completing her dissertation, Resonating Gongs, the integration of gongs into sound therapy with the music faculty at the London Metropolitan University, she studied with Grand Gong Master Don Sorrow. Mona went on to train student sound practitioners at the Northern School of Soundsmiths in Manchester. In 2018, she's delighted to have returned to Australia to share her sound practice. And we're really lucky that she's going to share one with us today as well at the end of the session. Um, beside Mona, we have Dr. Emma O'Brien. She's a singer, performer, music therapist, composer, researcher and health tech entrepreneur. 
Emma founded the music therapy program at the Royal Melbourne Hospital in 1997. Um, since then, she's built an award-winning, world-recognised music therapy program at the hospital in cancer services, palliative care and neurology. She has extensive experience in music and health projects as a music therapist, a health manager, a composer and a researcher. And she's an internationally renowned innovator in the roles of music and well-being, um, specialising in acute health care. Uh, Emma was awarded the Victorian Public Healthcare Award in 2011 for her pioneering methods of songwriting in enabling person and family-centred care. Um, she was named the Age Melbourne magazine as one of Melbourne's top 100 provocative, passionate and powerful people of 2012. Uh, she has a PhD from the University of Melbourne um, looking at methods of guided songwriting on K-ship cancer patients, quality of life, mood states, distress levels and satisfaction with hospital stay. Um, she's lectured at the university um, and also at the University of Aalborg in Denmark um, and is widely published on, on her various researches. Um, she won a Medal of the Order of Australia in 2017, Australia Day Honours. Um, most recently, her music department, um, now celebrating 20 years, was awarded the Victorian Public Healthcare Award for Compassionate Care for Victorians. And she also took out another award last night. What was that one, Emma? <laughs> um, that was a Melbourne Award for the whole team for our impact on the Melbourne community for the last 20 years for the music therapy. So it's not my award, it's everyone's award. But, um, yeah, that was exciting. <laughs> and the Pavilion won an award as well for the Melbourne Awards too. So well done, Pavilion. <laughs> Um, and last but definitely not least, we have Sophie Miles. Um, Sophie is a kundalini yoga teacher. She's the host of the podcast The Witching Hour um, for Laneway and founder of Mistletone Records and Touring. Recently completing her kundalini training, Sophie's interested in how mantra chants and the sound current vibrations can facilitate healing in our minds, our bodies and our spirits. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar, Mistletone is an independent label and touring company um, started in 2006 by Sophie and her husband, Ash. Um, they've, they launched with um, one of Ariel Pink, Haunted Graffiti's records, um, but have gone, and his first Australian tour, um, but have gone on to tour artists like Beach House, Kurt Vile, Toe and Moi, um, Parquet Courts, uh, Sharon Van Etten, there's a, a million I can go on forever, um, but they also work closely with many great festivals in Australia. So please join me in welcoming our guests. <laughs> um, so across your various practices, um, you're all in very different ways facilitating musical encounters and experiences with others that also facilitate various modes of healing but before we talk about those practices, I'm wondering if um, any of you would like to share a moment um, that you've personally had with that aspect of music and healing. Was there any kind of any kind of moment for you that um, that was particularly, you know, nourishing in that way and made you want to share those sound experiences with others to help them? Yeah, sure. Um, I could say that my first experience attending a sound bath when I was living in London and therefore the first time that I heard the gongs was a really pivotal moment for me in terms of sound and how it can affect the mind and body. And that was mainly because initially the first time when I heard the gong, I wasn't, my brain didn't know how to process the sounds. So it actually was able to really shut down my mind. I was in a yoga studio, I was laying down, my eyes were closed and my ears were open, which is the whole premise of a sound bath and sound bathing and that you're laying down. So I felt like I was able to really have a journey and 
my brain didn't have any associations with the sound. So it was really relaxing. And I think that was my first moment of also having a physical response to sound and feeling the vibrations and the sensations. So that's what began my exploration of sound and sound journeying and sound bathing. Yeah. How about you, Emma? You've been doing this work at the Royal Melbourne for, as we said, tw over 20 years now. That's a... Uh, I can think of a million times that I've had the privilege to experience how music can transform someone, you know, from people who can't speak but they can sing and the look on their face when they hear their own voice again as they sing and then we can retrain them to speak. But the one that well, probably stands out for me the most, I knew a patient for a very long time and I have permission to share this story. And he was very, very unwell and he was a young Sri Lankan man and he'd come to Australia for a treatment and things weren't going so well for him. And I'd already, always promised that I would play for him. And he, even when he knew things weren't so well, he'd get up every morning and practice the guitar because he wanted to learn to play the guitar. And when things were getting worse, he said, promise me you'll play. I said, yes, I will. So I was playing live music and he loved a bit of Coldplay. And all his friends were around his bed. It was absolutely beautiful. We were all singing, you know, lights will go. We were often in the world of Coldplay. And then he's, uh, the monk that he'd been working with, the Buddhist monk, came in and said, I'd like to do some chanting. And I said, oh, okay, we'll stop. And he goes, no, continue. And it was the most beautiful transforming moment of everyone was singing around this young man's bed. The chanting was going on. And it was just, it was just this moment where people came together and music and chanting synthesised. And it was all about... Bringing him peace. And I, you know, I'm very lucky. I get to experience these things every day. It's probably why I've been there for so long. Um, but it is very invigorating for me as well and to have that privilege to be led into that space. So that one stands out for me. How about you, Soph, in the work that you've done at Mistletone or within your yoga practice? Well, I was just thinking about when you were talking about chanting, the first experience I had with chanting really brought a lot of things together for me in terms of understanding how music and sound can resonate in our bodies and our minds. And the first time I went to a kundalini yoga class where chanting is part of every class and I'd never been exposed to that before. And we chanted the Mool Mantra, which is one of the key um, mantras in this lineage. And I was walking home afterwards and I could feel the mantra vibrating, like continuing to play itself in my mind. And I thought, this is interesting because I didn't even know what the words were or what it meant or what was going on at all. And I went home and I remember having a shower and I was kind of... I could just feel and hear this mantra continuing to uh, resonate within myself. And it made me think uh, about an experience I'd had when I was a little child where I was lying awake one night and I always loved listening to music as a kid. And I suddenly had this awareness as I was drifting into sleep that I could hear a song playing in my mind, but it wasn't me controlling that song. I don't know if people relate to that, but it was as though there was a radio in my head and I could hear the music. And it was this really profound experience for me as a little kid because I'm like, hey, this music's inside me. It's, mm. it's there. Um, and so having this experience with mantra also made me realise it just connected me back into that thread and I was also thinking about when you first go to a concert, like a live music concert, when you're maybe, you know, a kid or a teenager and you feel it in your body. You know, that feeling when you can, you feel that, you hear the drum and it's actually in your chest and the bass is in you, you know, vibrating. And I think as you get older, you just start to think that's normal. But when you're 
a kid, you're like, oh, my God, what's going on? You know, my body is tuning into this music. And, uh, you know, we've all had that ex experience on dance floors or wherever where you can actually feel yourself resonating with the music. And I think it is every time I've had that experience with my body tuning into it, it's very much, yes, my body is saying yes to this. It's like, yes, you belong here. Yeah, this is for you. So, yeah. That's a really beautiful story. Um, in all those cases, um, even though they're quite different experiences that we're talking about, um, they all have a, a live aspect and they all have a kind of communal aspect to them as well. Is there something different about that live experience of music, um, whether it is, you know, the actual physical vibrations or the fact that it, it's bringing people together in a room? Does the effect of, of listening to a record um, have, have the same kind of resonance or does, do we need that live aspect? I can talk a bit to research here. So we have actually done research projects where we've compared um, experiencing live music and recorded music. And without a doubt, the live music has a stronger effect on uplifting our moods, boosting our immune systems. So just having that... You ever, when you get a little shiver down your spine, do you ever get that when you hear live music? You can get it when you listen to recorded too, but it's a bit more powerful with live music and that actually stimulates your immune system. So it's like taking a, a bit of a health pill with your music. So... There's nothing wrong with recorded music. I love recorded music and it's beautiful and particularly if you take time and you're mindful with it. I think sometimes we just have it on in the background and we're not listening as well. And that's okay because that has another purpose too. So you're getting ready and you've got the beat going in because we love to be in tune with each other. And human beings are hardwired for it. It's true what Oliver Sacks said. We know that. We know that we sang before we, we spoke, which is why when you see a little baby and you go, oh, you gorgeous little thing like this, and they can't understand what you're saying, but they understand the intonation of your voice. So if you went, not that you would do this and I don't recommend it, but if you went, oh, my gosh, you're so ugly, the baby would go, oh. Because it, it, does, it hears the inflection and the intention and the singing. So we are actually hardwired to be that way together and, and the community aspects as well. Yeah, I would also agree that the nervous system is going to respond differently to live music. And also from a sound point of view, uh, in terms of vibrations, I feel like it's, it depends on the speaker setup, but live and the acoustics of being in a space and in a sound bath usually, we would be in an enclosed space with different surfaces and then there'd be different types of vibrations. So for example, with the gong, it's able to produce low frequencies and also high frequencies at the same time. And that all be bouncing around the different surfaces with also the crystal bowls and different shaped waves. So experiencing it live is much more ideal because then you are in this vibrational field and they are actually physically washing over you. I think if you had a subwoofer and amplifiers, it's totally possible because I have been to concerts where you're laying down on the ground and you can feel the vibrations through the cement. But the premise of a sound bath usually is that it's live and it's acoustic and it's sensory and it's visceral and, yeah, it's about the, the listening body and how it's responding live to these vibrations. So a huge part of what you guys um, have been able to do with Mistletone that's made it so beautiful is the kind of community building aspect as well, whether that's um, introducing artists to different audiences in Australia, but also um, the touring and the kind of community you build around the, the various festivals that you guys have put on over the years. Um, do you see a, a resonance between that and the kind of experiences you're talking about in the yoga practice? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think the first you know, spiritual experience I had was through rock and roll, you know. And I know for a lot of people, um, a lot of my friends and people who go to shows, that is our church, you know. This is where we're going to commune with other people and feel that connection and feel 
that we are not alone. And I think a lot of when you become a teenager and you get into a particular sort of music that, that resonates for you and you feel like, yes, this is what I, these are the people I belong with. And, you know, working as I do with musicians who are performing live and who are travelling the world to do this, which is kind of an unnatural situation to start with. And most of the artists we work with I would describe as empaths. You know, we're, we're working with people who are producing, consciously producing very beautiful music, which is, you know, it's not uh, just entertainment. You know, it's, it's, it, got, it goes very deep for them. So I see part of my role as providing, you know, support to those people that they can actually travel and, and create these experiences for people. And our job, Mine and Ashes, is really just doing the background work so that they don't have to worry about the details of <laughs> um, getting people to the show or booking their flights and that sort of thing. But I... For me, my yoga and meditation practice has been a completely logical extension of that. And um, I also feel that as I get older working in the music industry, it is a really tough business, you know. It's, it's very hard on your body and your mind and there's a huge amount of mental health issues, uh, a lot of alcohol and drug issues. And um, I find that, you know, these days when I'm out at shows, talking with other, other people who work in the industry, all people want to talk about is yoga and meditation because it's, you know, how do I stay in this space? How do I keep myself sane and healthy? Um, that That is, the connections are quite um, appealing for a lot of people in music. How do you, how do you reconcile then those kind of um, cultural clashes, I guess, you know, the fact that on the one hand it, it is this space that brings all these people together, like you said, it, it's your church but it's also a, a culture that has a, a lot of excess of various kinds that's kind of inbuilt into it. Sure, I mean, I'm not kind of opposed to alcohol or drugs, I've had some amazing experiences <laughs> with both, you know, but, um, but there is a price that you pay, you know, and for me, um, the experiences that I have with yoga and meditation, I feel better afterwards than I did <laughs> beforehand. Um, but yeah, it is it is a space that is is filled with those things. Um, the people that we tend to work with who are working at that level um, are, are really turning away from that because you can't really you can't trust yourself and continue to perform. It's impossible. You will destroy yourself. So. I think that's why a lot of people start to look for other methods of tuning into, you know, those, that connection without having to get high or get drunk. So we find, obviously, in music therapy, our role and with my whole team there, is that we're responding to the person in front of us. So although we're within ourselves creative people and we're in our music, but we're really responding and, and translating that other person's music and connecting with them. And that can be quite draining. So you always have to be careful and sure that you feed yourself with music. So that's why I compose as well. So I'll go into another sort of almost altered state and compose. And that kind of feeds my music back. And I think sometimes when you're consi consistently performing, it's going this way. And you have to remember to bring a little bit back for yourself. And that's that connection. And I think sometimes, you know, like you're saying, maybe bring it back with a glass of Chardonnay, but maybe you shouldn't. You should just go and, go and sing to yourself. Even though you've been singing all day, I'll go home and do some more music at home. Because that feeds me. It's a different way. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, that sure. makes sense. Yeah. Um, Emma, could you maybe talk us through it? 
music therapy, I think, is something it's it's obviously like incredibly well recognized now as a form of practice, but I'm not sure everybody would know what exactly it entails. What is it what is an average day like for you at the Royal Melbourne? I'm sure there is no average, but <laughs> so it our job is to help people reconnect with music when they're under great levels of stress and distress. So you imagine in a hospital 20 years ago, music didn't live there. And so I thought, well, I think it should live here. So, and it does now. So if you walk into the Royal Melbourne Hospital, most days you'll find a musician, one of our volunteers, playing in the hallways. Most of those are medical students, which is also part of my evil plan to take over the world. So when they are graduated as doctors, they are right into the music. And they're asking the question, where's the music therapy? How can you treat these patients without giving them music? And they're doing that now. So they work with people with chronic pain. They say, why aren't, you, why aren't you telling them to use music and relaxation? Why are we only giving them drugs? So they are part of that work. So that's one bit that I do on the side. But <laughs> the work that with the patients and their families, it really depends on what their needs are. And without a doubt, we are known for our live music. Yes, we will suggest music people listen to, but the most important thing is that we're at their bedside with the guitar and our voice. And that's that very powerful connection. So that may be that I'm gently playing and someone's falling asleep but hasn't been able to sleep for five days. It could be that, there's, as I mentioned earlier, there's somebody who's had a brain injury, they can't speak, they can't move, but we motivate them through the music to start to move and then they start to sing. It's extraordinary. And then we actually will be quite clinical, you know. We'll use singing to retrain their brain. Then, as mentioned before, comfort... And a big part of my job too is I do guided songwriting. So I sit with people and they create an original song within an hour with us. We specialise in it. I did my PhD research on that, on the impact of their quality of life. And that's all original words, all original music, and then they record it. And so what happens when you have a diagnosis of, well, of anything really, you do become very much that illness. And so we're all about wellness and we're about who that person is. So next time their family or friends or even the doctor comes in and they say, how are you doing? They say, oh, I wrote a song. Do you want to hear it? As opposed to, oh, they've done my bloods. and the, You know, so that, that's that shift. So that's our role. And it does move in and out of that active. Some people just want to sit there and listen. Some people sing. You know, they'll have a lovely image of being in a chemotherapy ward. And I'm sure most people's lives are touched by cancer. And I hope what I'm saying isn't upsetting people here because I, it is everywhere. Um, but there's this beautiful image that I have. I remember I was singing, playing just very gently with one patient in, in his seat. And he was to be being there all day and he was singing. He said, let's sing We Are The Champions. And I went, oh, okay. And so if it's a big room, sometimes I'll just gently sing like, you know, I pay my dues. We're just singing quietly. And all of a sudden I heard this time after time. Someone joined in over there. And then this woman who had a flannel on the head went, we are the champions. And the whole chemotherapy ward started singing. And it was fantastic because suddenly it wasn't a hospital anymore. It was just a bunch of people going through a really bad time but helping each other. And it's just, it, I really, I mean, obviously I sound like I love my job because I really do and I feel so privileged to, to use music. And you can do that too. You know, you can use it for yourself but you can visit your friends and you can go and sing with them and just remind them who they are. And I think that's, that's a day in music therapy. It's quite a day. So sometimes you go home and go, oh, I've had a nice day today. Sometimes it's really hard but mostly it's extraordinary. Um, 
Mona, that sounds quite different to how a sound bath operates, mm. but um, that's another one that I'm not sure everyone mm, would know. Sure. We have these beautiful gongs behind us, but what actually takes sure. place in a sound bath? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's quite nice just to explain what a sound bath is or how it can be experienced. So the first thing I wanted to say, well, yeah, you are bathing in sound, so that's the use of the metaphor, that you'd be rinsing in sound, the sound is washing over you, you're marinating in sound, rinsing in sound, all these lovely synonyms. But um, the first thing I wanted to let people know is you don't take your clothes off because there was this association that it's some kind of culty activity and we all like sit in a circle or something but that's not what happens so you keep your clothes on and uh, the joy of the experience I believe is that you're laying down and that's how you are consuming the sounds so you'd be laying down and your eyes would be closed and ears open and then what would usually happen is there's depending on the event 45 to 60 minutes of continuous sound and that becomes the sound journey and what I like to do is just think about the listening process and it's just a different way of listening and responding to sound and to see ourselves as the listening body I think is a really interesting concept so the ear is hearing the brain is listening and also the body is sensing vibrations so it's a very dense listening experience and it's about purely being receptive as well. So there's absolutely nothing anyone needs to be doing in a sound bath besides just laying down. And that creates space for you to go in and to connect with yourself and to see where the journey takes you. And yeah, usually it's quite subjective. Each person is going to have a different relationship to sound and different sensitivities to sound, previous experiences to sound. And also uh, expectations will also shape the person's experience. But usually I would say that the experiences you can have from a sound bath is that it's just pure relaxation. It can be sound meditation for those that either have a meditation practice or for those that struggle with meditation. Then I see it as meditation without dogma because you don't need to be cross-legged in the Himalayans. You're here, you're laying down and you don't have to do meditation. You kind of become meditative. So it's quite... Um, it's just stretching that word, meditation, really. And then it can be deep listening, which is another term that I really, really enjoy. And that's just about focusing on all the different sounds and that links into the bathing. And then it's about the physicality of sound. So for those that are responsive to sound, then it can be quite a physical experience that you have bodily sensations and it's flushing through your system. And if there's any like parts of your body that are in pain, then usually it's the vibrations are trying to push through those areas. Um, and then, yeah, similar to what we were saying earlier, it can be a trip because I feel like the sound can really play with brain states. And that's what I find really interesting, that you would walk into the space in beta brainwaves, which is us being awake and having the human responsibilities of driving and so forth but then as you relax it becomes alpha and the brainwaves are really slowing and if we can get our brainwaves through sound to a space between theta and delta then that's where your mind can really go wild and you can be in between awake and asleep and you can recall it's like lucid dreaming it's trancey it's dreamy so there's lots of possibilities yeah um, I'm interested across all these um, all these practices. Are there particular ailments or particular kinds of people um, that respond particularly well to these kind of, of healing practices, or is it something that that can have resonance for for various kind of um, afflictions and, and various kinds of people? I'm sure you've got the research to back this up, Emma. <laughs> 
a lot, a lot of it has to do with what that person's needs are. So we do have different ways of working with people, like I said earlier. So you might focus more on if you're trying to help someone retrain how they speak. So you're going to be very clinical with that. But without a doubt, it's how you choose to use the music, I think. And um, Mona's going to be coming to the hospital now as well. So she'll be part of our day. And I think it's got to do... So certain people, it's what you're seeking, I think. Without a doubt, if you don't want music to help you, it won't. And we've seen that. So I have worked with people that can sing and they can't speak, but they just have, they just can't, they can't do it. So it doesn't work for them and that's fine. We just think, okay, maybe later. And it also depends where people are at too. So you'll meet a patient, they might have just been diagnosed. It's not the right time for them. Maybe it's better time two weeks later. So we don't ever give up, but I think it has, has a lot to do with you believing that it's going to help you. I can tell you it will help you. We can give you all the research. You can have wonderful quality of life. You'll all walk out here with more natural killer cells than you had when you walked in, which is fantastic. Your immune systems will be charging and firing. And I'm sure we'll all have that moment where we all go, wow, what just happened? But let it in. I think that's the, the key with any sort of illness too. We can resist. Our job is to help unlock. What about you, Mona? What kind of people come seeking a sound bath? For what reasons do people want to enter into that experience? Yeah, sure. I feel like it's quite mixed. Uh, Usually it would be relaxation, so people who are stressed and are craving to be in a state of non-doing and stillness and there's no smartphones in the space, so that's everything's outside and you're just shutting down and going inwards. So, uh, yeah, people who have back issues are hunched over because it's quite useful also just to be laying down flat and surrendering to gravity for the one hour, very similar to, like, the Alexander technique, which would just say you simply just need to be laying down for 20 minutes and that's really good for your anatomy. Uh, Then you've got the creative people who are coming in for the trip um, and, and meditators, for sure, who are integrating sound into their practice, so using that to de-stress themselves. But again, I also do think it's very much about your expectations and I believe in the human body self-healing. So it's for what what are people's intentions? Why do they come in? So they might come in... Uh, knowing that they're sensitive to sound and the sound is going to be flushing through their meridian channels and if that's what they're tuning into then that's potentially what's happening but I like to give the agency over to the listener and to see where it takes them. I don't assume that necessarily anyone's a sound healer and people who come to a sound bath need to be healed like with these particular roles but that the human body can really achieve self-healing once the brain waves are dropping into theta. So that's when, you know, if you're able to induce a relaxation response through sound, then that's where the human body would then take over and then it depends what the aftercare is and how many times you come and, yeah, what what the process is. But, yeah. Um, I could also speak a little bit about the impact of, of chanting on on the human body and I've recently, I've only just finished my teacher training so it's really fascinating for me to see how students um, respond to this experience of chanting but one thing that chanting does is it opens up your hearts and your lung area and of course our hearts and our lungs are protected by our rib cage, which is this very important protective um, structure but I think also we have a whole lot of... Um, cages that we build ourselves in terms of wanting to protect our hearts and that can become a prison, you know, after many years that you have all sorts of conditioned responses 
to keep yourself safe, which may have been useful when you were in a situation of where you felt unsafe, but to be able to open up your heart and your lungs in the way that chanting does is a really moving experience for a lot of people. And I think the experience of chanting in a group as well, where you hear your own voice joining with other voices, to me was very profound. Like my teacher said, um, the most healing sound you'll ever hear is the sound of your own voice. And I think a lot of people cringe when they hear their own voice. You know, there's that sort of common thing that, oh, God, do I sound like that? And a lot of people think they can't sing, for instance. But everyone can sing. You know, it's, it's, as Emma said, it's in our nature, it's in our DNA. So when we kind of let go of that self-consciousness about what do I sound like, am I doing this right? And you start to, as you're chanting, you go, you, your, your consciousness changes so that you can get into a state where you can hear yourself chanting, but the chanting is coming through you. It's not a conscious effort anymore and you're joining in the group um, and there is a, a sound current happening that your body is tuning into and it's, um, it is a very deeply meditative state and quite uh, interesting what happens when you get into that state. Now that you have become a teacher and, um, and that, that practice and the, the work you do at Mistletone are kind of happening um, side by side, do you feel them coming together in any particular ways? Yes, yeah, yeah. most definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's very much connected for me. I'm, you know, I'm fortunate with my work that my work is my life and my life is my work and I don't need to make those... I don't need to disconnect. Um, and that was one of the... Very early on, uh, one of the musicians that we work with said that to me and Ash, because I was saying, what do you do about work-life balance? And he was like, you know, people who have to struggle with work-life balance, I really feel for them because I don't have to do that. My work is my life, my life is my work. And that was a really profound thing for me to hear because it, it kind of showed me a way that I could be present in everything I do and just be the same person. And that is a really lovely um, thing that I've been able to do at this stage of my life. Yeah. Um, Emma, I'm really interested in hearing a bit more about um, the particular research you've done. You know, we've talked about how, how you need this certain um, receptivity and, and openness for these things to work for you, um, but you've done, you know, a PhD worth of clinical research into how this affects cancer patients in particular. Um, what were the things that you found there and did you find anything surprising? Okay, so I talked a bit about creating the original song. So it's a guided way of working with people. And in, in fact, that method grew out of my work in the hospital. So it was co-designed with the patients. And I do say patients. I know some people say clients, but I work in a hospital. And it was co-designed with them. You know, how can we create this song together? How can I... And they, they actually, when they were interviewed, said, oh, she's like a guide in the process, hence why it's called guided original lyrics and music. So then the doctor, one of the medicos said to me, is it because you're writing a song with them or just because you're being nice to them? And I went, okay, how about I t test that? How about I just be nice to them and then write a song with them? So we did a big randomised controlled trial. Um, we had patients that it had to be waitlisted, which basically means that, you know, people did become a bit of a number in a computer. So they were recruited to the study. And they either wrote a song straight away using the methodology or they waited and wrote the song. And at those same time points, we measured them. And I either created the song with them, the original song, 
or I sat with them and I was nice to them. So there was no music, but we're still being, you know, hello, how's it going, hello, connecting. But the other group did the songwriting. And then the ones that had been waiting, because songwriting is such a big part of, of our treatment for cancer patients now, which is just gorgeous, isn't it? Like, you know, the, the expectations if you come in and you have treatment with us that you write a song. <laughs> I loved that. And in fact, it was one of the doctors who said, you can't, you can't not let them write a song. Standard treatment. They'll have to write one later. <laughs> so <laughs> I loved that. So then they wrote the song, but that part wasn't measured. So we basically compared the two. And... Um, found that the songwriting significantly improved their quality of life. And we used standardised measures like profile of mood states and all those number crunching things. And we also interviewed them because I love all the in-depth stories. But sometimes in a hospital you have to have the numbers. You've got to you know, play the game and tell the story in the language they understand. And we did find that it significantly improved their quality of life. It gave them better clarity of thought when they created a song because often they were very confused about life and everything and afterwards they felt much more clear Regardless of what their song was about, a lot of them wrote beautiful thank you songs or songs processing their cancer or songs about their IV pole. And all. But some of them wrote, you know, songs about turtles. So it wasn't like they were consciously going, and now I'm going to sort out how I'm thinking. But we did find that they had better clarity of thought. Their moods were elevated. They didn't feel as confused. And in the quality of life measure, it actually has existential, spiritual measures and physical measures... And I must admit, you know, you're not meant to go into research thinking, oh, this is going to happen. But I was pretty sure that the existential and spiritual would be the highest rating. But in fact, it was the physical well-being that came out above those. So actually, the actual act of creating an original song made them physically feel better, which I thought was just a beautiful finding. They're still rated quite highly in the other ones, but the other one went right through the roof. So that was quite a substantial finding for music therapy and... You know, there is a lot of research out there now and I think what we just need to do now is just communicate with each other as practitioners, you know, draw on the research we've done in the hospital. It is applicable. There is research about reducing stress and distress and anxiety. It's all out there now and we just have to now convince the powers that be and all the medical practitioners and all the hospitals that it just becomes part of, it's just part of normal treatment. So music therapy is actually in allied health, so speech therapy, physiotherapy, music therapy, and that, it, you know, I'm, I'm confident that in the next four or five years it really will be, what do you mean you haven't got music therapy in the hospital? What do you mean you haven't got art? What do you mean? I don't understand. And that's where we're headed and people just have to, and as consumers and patients, it's you can do that. You can go... Where is it? You know, this is what I want. Go and see your GP. If they say, oh, you're obviously very anxious. Um, here, you can have this. Go, actually, no, I don't want that. Have you got a choir or something I can go to? <laughs> you know, ask the question. I'd really like to get participate in, in community stuff. Can you, can you point me that way? And so, and that will, and we're at it. This is a really exciting time. It is. I'm you know, obviously excited. But I think we can, I think we can get there because we, we need it. We've gone so far the other way. We all, I mean, look, we all want to be here together. This is a gorgeous turnout. I'm hanging out for the sound bath. And we, we need it. We want it. And we can do it together. Um, what are the kind of songs that people are writing? Are they, are they purely writing lyrics? Is that kind of mode of expression? Or are, are no, they, they involved right, in the composition No, they do well. the whole music yeah. too. So yeah. my job is to um, get the music out of them. So once they've con um, – because they, they know they're writing a song. So we talk and talk and talk and then becomes verse and chorus. And so they watch the structure – and then, you know, the age-old question, how would you like that to go? And I sit there with the guitar and I'm sort of like a clever little toy that they can go, oh, can you make it a bit more? 
I'm like, oh, what is this? And, um, or, you know, some of them can be quite directive. I want to write a country western style, so we'll start playing that. And then the song evolves. People actually know what they want. They can hear it. You can see their faces when I get it wrong. Like, what are you playing? That's not, that's not what I want in that. You know, if it's like, thank you or something like that, and I'm going, thank you, and they're like, look at me, like, no, you've got it wrong. So I, I tune into them, and then ideally they start singing spontaneously. People will do it, or they'll conduct me. No, oh, okay, like this. There's a really lovely documentary actually called Opera Therapy where I write an opera with um, people with cancer. It's, I think it's still around. It was SBS featured it in 2005. And you'll see the process at piano because I'm also an opera singer. So, that, you know, so no. <laughs> and that opera was an extraordinary meeting for that. So, they, yeah, they, we create an entire original song. If you go on SoundCloud and look up... Um, uh, you just put oh, I've got, no, so Emma O'Brien co-music and Living Soul. You'll, there's a triple CD of 52 songs and you can hear the songs that have been written. They're up there free in the SoundCloud if you listen to. Lots of people's journeys, all styles of music because there's all different sorts of people. So that's the whole thing, you know. And over the 20 years I've probably written about 500 and plus songs plus an opera and a cabaret. I could not have done that in my bedroom on my own. This is a collaboration. This is me helping them get their songs, and my team as well. Yeah. Um, Mona, over the course of your practice, have, have there been particular revelations for you as to, as to what a sound bath can do either for yourself or, or for the people that you're working with and, um, and facilitating those experiences for? Yeah, I feel like, again, it's going to be about the relaxation. So people who would be walking into a sound bath feeling exhausted can, at the end, just feel like there's a sense of rejuvenation because they've been able to collapse onto the yoga mat or, or the mat underneath them and surrender to the gravity and to just recharge, basically. So usually that's what's fed back to me is that, okay, then you're sleeping really well, so you leave the sound bath and you're quite floaty because your brain waves have shifted a little bit and then, yeah, you just rest and you wake up. Uh, people, creatively, I feel as though there's a lot of scope. So people have told me that they've just had this trip where they're in this kind of hypnagogic state, which I think is quite interesting, what I was saying earlier about being awake and asleep and just getting flashes of imagery and lucid dreaming and symbolic thinking and lateral thinking. So in this moment in time, I think people can have moments of insight so they just walk out feeling clearer about something if they came into the journey to process something. Uh, and then just, again, enhancing a meditation practice or people who felt like they couldn't previously meditate because they felt like it was daunting and this syndrome of feeling like, am I doing it right? And then actually, I mean, one of the premises of studying yoga is that you do these hundreds and hundreds of hours of asanas so that you can actually sit cross-legged and meditate without feeling any physical discomfort, which would enhance the practice. But if your body isn't able to do that, then we try to sit cross-legged and it's uncomfortable and it's awkward and that can hinder the meditation. So it can be quite liberating for people to come to a sound bath and realise, okay, hey, I can meditate laying down. Uh, there's those that go to sleep and wake up and they don't really know what happened. So that's also a situation. <laughs> and there is a snorer potentially in the space. Um, so I would be honest about that, one in 10 snore. Um, but then I also feel like that's quite nice challenge for meditation. Can that also, add to the vibrations well, of the sound bath? It can. It depends. It depends. <laughs> if it's a low frequency, I'm like, okay, that's okay. But if it's got this like animal-like sound effect, then it's problematic. 
It can be, but I can't... If it's a friend, I can wake them up. So I did have a friend in London who was a chronic snorer and I ended up banning him from the sound bars. And <laughs> I had to and doing private sound sessions because I was playing the gong and then I'd have to run around and, like, tap his <laughs> gong with the foot, run back, and then I came back. He'd already gone back to sleep and he was snoring and we did this and I was like, this is absurd. I love the imagery, but you're banned, basically. Um... Yeah, so, yeah, people snore. But then, I, again, I think that's really interesting for meditation. Like, okay, what do you do with a person who's snoring? You, Yeah, you need to accept it. I was going to say, in my work, if I've played for them and they're snoring, I'm like, great, my work is done. Yeah, 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 And sure. I'll just gently back out of the room and let them sleep. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But in a group, I see people who are kind of getting up and they're trying to give them the death stare. But it's like, well, they're out. They don't really see that. But, yeah, so that's something that one has to also deal with and also accept in a group work that there might be a snorer, but there may not. But, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in, in how yoga shifted for you as well, Sophie, because it's something that you've come to relatively recently. What were, you, what were you kind of searching for when you embarked on that practice and how's that relationship changed? Yeah, I came to, look to yoga really late in life, so it wasn't you know, the midlife crisis that I was expecting, actually. Um, when I first started going to classes about five or six years ago, I literally had no body awareness. Like, if people would, would say, you know, raise your right arm like this, and I'd be just like, how, how do I even do that? That's the level that I was at, of just not being in my body at all and having many years of kind of feeling that I was dragging my body along behind me, you know, and wishing... And just, you know, really wishing that my body was different than it was. And yoga really brought me into, firstly, a new relationship with my body of actually being able to appreciate it, care for it and use it. And as Mona was saying, yoga is, as I understand it, it's a pathway to meditation. So a lot of people do practice yoga to get fit and healthy and to sculpt their body and it will it will do all that for sure but yoga in its um uh it, it literally the word yoga comes from the word similarly word is yoke which is to connect so it's connecting your mind your body and your spirit and bringing yourself into uh the, the journey to to that spiritual side of yourself or what you might call the stillness within is through the body and it's through the mind. So when we practice yoga, we're preparing ourselves for meditation and the meditation then through chanting kind of brings you into that stillness where all the... Because I think even just the, the lives that we're living at the moment with our smartphones and with the amount of information that's constantly coming in just that alone makes us need meditation, just to be able to offset the effects on our nervous system of being constantly on high alert. And most people I know are feeling really frazzled. <laughs> and, yeah, it is a way to, to bring yourself to stillness so that you can start to listen to what is that inner voice, which most of us haven't heard. You know, I know I had inklings that there was something else going on but um, hadn't connected to that inner wisdom that is there. But you do need to silence the rest of the noise before you can start to hear what's going on. And you might call it your intuition or whatever it is, but it's very valuable in the rest of your life. I don't think yoga is not about what's happening on the mat. It's what happening, what's happening in your life for the other 23 hours of the day, that it's training for being alive, really. <laughs> 
Um, I've got a million more questions, but that's maybe a, a nice moment to open it up to you guys. Um, if anyone has a question, do you want to just pop your hand up and I can bring your mic or we've got one, um, we've got one roving around? Yeah, up here. Check. Hi, thank you so much for that. I had a question for Emma. I was wondering how is the process of, you mentioned there was the opera yes. that you had composed. How is the process of um, songwriting with a patient at their bedsides to writing a full opera? How was that different? What did that bring out? What were the qualities in that? Uh, that's a great question, actually, because there's a hilarious part in the beginning of the documentary where I think I can write an opera with a guitar. And I've got the guitar in front of me and I thought I'd put it to one side and use the piano. So the difference, it was pretty much the same way of working but it was a much bigger story for all of them. Um, when I'm looking for the connecting to find their song, what I, I had to think, okay, well, if I do that all the way through the opera, it's just going to sound like a bunch of songs. It's not going to sound like a, a piece. So I, with each individual sat them down next, and they were with me the whole time sitting at the piano, um, and asked them to describe what cancer sounded like to them. And that then became their cancer chord. So we spent a bit of time, um, and some came very quickly. Um, and you'll see this in the documentary, the woman says, oh, it's like a, she actually said it's the colour's purple and it's like a cat waiting to pounce and it's squashed up. So I responded on the piano and she went, yeah, that's nearly it. And so then, and I tried again and we, and so I literally tried to respond musically to her descriptors and that's how it went through with all the pieces. Some of them it was like, it's, a, you know, it wasn't always, cancer wasn't always like a hideous thing for them. Some of them said it was an opportunity to stop. And so that was a different sort of chord. So then that became the basis of their own stories that then evolved through the opera. Because I needed something to, like, it's almost like their own story was one great big song, but obviously with little arias in between and, and recitatives. So it's the same method, but I had to find a way to get the one sound for that person. And again, some I got quickly, some I didn't. If you watch the documentary, you'll think, wow, she's really quick, but that's because they edited out a lot of it. Whereas <laughs> Lisa's like, it's kind of like spread out and a bit sort of intense, but not really. Oh, okay. And so I'm <laughs> trying to get more information from her. She's face is like, oh, you're just not getting it. And then there's this aha moment. And this happens in the songwriting too. Has anyone ever created a song with someone? Or if you've done any of that, when, when you actually think, oh, who wrote that? I didn't write that. You didn't write that. It just came. And that's what we're always seeking in the songwriting process, that the song actually will write itself. Once you set it up, and the same with the opera. Like, I look back and I go, I can't even remember how that came to pass, but it works. And that's when the song's taken over. So that would be in the small time, in the pop song, but also in the opera, that same kind of other. And it does. It does. You go, wow, great, done. <laughs> Thank you. Um, anyone else pop up their hand? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of music therapy, how do you see it combining with, um, say, a patient who sees someone for music therapy and then psychotherapy and talking therapy? How can the music therapist mm. and the psychologist work together on this? 
we do that a lot. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's actually... Um, it's sometimes we're there to unlock them a little bit. So we will talk in, in music therapy as well. But I, I tell my staff it's the 80-20 rule. I'd rather they did 80% music and 20% talking. But if someone starts talking, we don't go, look, sorry, no, this is music. So we will, we're trying to, to verbally process as well and to keep people in a safe space. But what's lovely about the music is it doesn't feel as sometimes as threatening. So if you go and it's, often we'll get referrals for people that have locked down and they won't speak to anybody and they really, they won't and they can't and that's okay. And then, but within a hospital setting, you've got psychotherapists and psychologists and you've got social workers. Everyone's trying to help this person, but the person doesn't want to talk. But they'll let the music therapist in and then they'll pick a song and then we'll start to play and then they'll start to cry. And it just unlocks them. And it's less, it is less confronting, but it is still confronting because someone's actually gone, okay, I get you and I can hear you and I can hear your music and, and we're in music together. So then we definitely work very closely with our with our colleagues and for some people they only want music therapy some people only want to see the social worker it's, so sometimes it's their choice but without a doubt absolutely you can we can help each other help that person get home feel like themselves you know the irony of hospitals we actually don't want you to be in there we want you to we want to look after you and we want you to be able to get home yeah Thank you so much. Um, are there another question? I've got one over here. Um, I was wondering what the academic industries are, how they're viewing the um, music therapy as, a, as an academic practice. Obviously, there's uh, some hospitals in, interested in Melbourne Uni does a course on it, but it's still a baby, I imagine. So what, what are the changes going on right now? Yeah, so you have to qualify as a music therapist to work as a registered music therapist in a hospital. But I also work with community musicians as well. I have them as part of my team. Um, and so in terms of academic-wise, uh, I'm working now with the medical students faculty. We're going to run a short course so they actually can participate in live music because it's also for them, for their well-being, but also that we educate them in that. Um, the University of Melbourne has a huge course. Around the world, it's quite quite big music therapy in terms of academia and research. There's a lot of research going on. And um, I think the, the most important thing is that, that research has to be purposeful. Uh, I'm, I, of course I believe in research, but I, I believe in research for to be translated into practice. I think we haven't quite got there yet. Sometimes people, this is all due respect because I have friends who are pure academics, but um, they if you're going to do research, it has to be meaningful and purposeful because it is a burden on someone to research them. So even doing the songwriting, yes, they got to write a song, but they had to fill out a lot of forms, you know, and they had to tell me, and they had to open up and, and so they're contributing like all research, but it was purposeful because we know that now all the patients get songwriting and it's part of their treatment and we understand what's what's going to happen. And I think that's the most important thing about academic, you know. If you go, oh, I think I might just see if, you know, someone does this or something and, and goes, oh, that that will, that will make them feel better. That's okay, but unless we're going to make sure that everybody does that, I can't see the value in that academia. I, I'm not really answering your question, am I? Yeah, but I think that's, that's the most important thing about any sort of research has to be translational. You can't just research... Research for research sake has a place, but I think in music and the arts, we want to see it. We want to go, hey, that really worked. And sometimes the actual research is on the 
the product, the art, the music, the song too. I'm interested for Mona and, and Sophie as well, um, perhaps not in academia but more widely, you know, is this still viewed as being a bit woo-woo or are people more, um, are people more kind of accepting of these practices now or have you come up against moments of resistance? You say woo-woo like it's a bad thing. Woo-woo! <laughs> 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 I think, you know, in um, the area that I work with in music, there's a huge interest. Like when I go to music industry parties these days, people are just kind of holding me up and asking me about meditation and yoga and, um, you know, yeah, perhaps other workplaces are less embracing of it, but um, definitely within music and within all the creative arts, um, the, the overlap is, is quite large. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm on the fence with this one. I feel as though in sound healing communities there's quite a lot of events which will make certain assumptions about sound and what it's able to achieve. So, for example, certain sound baths might be opening particular chakras and I feel like whilst these events do sell out and it becomes like a branding, it's also quite complicated because we can't confirm what frequency a particular chakra has and what particular frequency is coming out of a gong, for example, isn't just going to be one frequency and if they are resonating and if it is unblocking a chakra. So I'm a little bit sceptical about some of the claims that are made. Um, but I think that there is more research and hunger for knowledge and the people are studying sound and how it affects the human body. I think the furthest we've taken it at the moment is with the mind and with connecting the brain to EEG machines and knowing that when people listen to particular sounds, absolutely the brain waves are dropping. So that's where the alpha waves and the relaxation is being induced and the self-healing. Uh, in terms of vibrations travelling through the human body, that's where it gets really, really complicated because we still don't really know exactly what frequency each organ has and the human body is actually really noisy inside. So in terms of it being entrained by an external sound is complicated. We know that we can entrain brain waves, we can alter heart rate through sound, we can alter the breathing rhythms of ourselves, we can alter stomach contractions, which is every three minutes. So there's certain pulses of sound that we can entrain with, but um, we, it's more difficult to make big claims. And there have been some studies with gong baths and blood tests before and after gong baths, but as I was saying earlier to someone, it's really complicated to study the gong and there needs to be more money and funding because, for example, I spoke to an engineer in London and we would need to have a robot that would be playing the gong so that you could play the gong exactly the same way three times whilst the human was sitting down and listening and so who has yet invested that money. But there's a really big, big gong culture and a lot of gong addicts in Europe and America and I feel like it's happening. There's movement but we just need the cash. Yeah. I think also too. <laughs> I think also too. It's how you talk about your work. I think a lot of time, um, it's literally. I work in health. Most people working there want to look after you. They want to find a way to connect with you. They're just schooled in a different way of talking about it. So a lot of the time, I think if you can, if you are working in in music therapy or in any sort of sound healing, as long as you can talk the same language. Because sometimes we'll, I mean, even community musicians sometimes will used to in the past come up against music therapists, and then it'll be like, why are we doing? Why are people doing that? And we're all trying to do the same thing. We're all trying to help people connect in music. We're just talking about it a little bit differently, and um, 
you know, I think the skill is also to, like, so for instance, when Mona comes into the hospital, I'll, I'll have to sort of translate a bit what she's <laughs> what she's saying, so that the that they make it makes sense to the practitioners as well. And um, when I first started. Uh, all those years ago, one of the doctors goes, so, what's the difference between you and one of those clowns that walks around with a ukulele? <laughs> I went, oh, okay. The clown has a smaller guitar and bigger shoes, <laughs> right? And some of the other doctors went, oh, she got you there. Like, you know, you have to believe in what you're doing too. You have to think, okay, fine. If someone calls me, here comes the music lady and tells me to get a better job. Go and get a proper job down the road. Oh, okay, thanks. But it's changed. You know, and to have that passion and commitment, you know, you just believe in it. You go, this is actually going to work. And yes, you do the research, but you also have to be a little bit big-headed about it too, you know. And, you know, it, there's no way they would say that now. Now they go on their rounds, they go, oh, sorry, we'll come back. You're obviously in the middle of a music therapy session. And they're gone. There's no clown with big, no shoes. <laughs> Thank you so much. I think we're going to have to leave it there. I'm sure everyone has um, many more questions. So um, just keep in mind, um, please stick around if you can. Mona is going to treat us to a sound bath, which I think is going to be really special. Um, and we invite you all uh, to take part in that. Um, and then Sophie's also going to do a DJ set as well. And we're all going to be hanging around if you want to come up and have a chat. So um, please, please join me in thanking our excellent panellists, Mona, Emma and Sophie. <laughs> podcast conversations about design and the world we live in visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts